Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Money, as you know, can be a touchy subject. But how touchy? Rachel Sherman had no idea. A few years ago, she set out to do what she thought was a relatively straightforward study of 50 wealthy people. Most of them have at least half a million dollars in earnings every year and or assets of over $3 million. So they're they're in the 1% for the most part. Some of them are in the 0.1% with assets of over $50 million, you know, incomes in the tens of millions. What Sherman, who's an associate professor of sociology at the New School in New York, wanted to know from these folks was, how did they spend their money? What did they think they needed? And what did they just want? Then somewhere along the way, the focus of the study changed. Sherman found it was very hard to find someone who was rich, or at least someone who would use that word. They want to distance themselves from the stigma of wealth. And so it's actually easier. They would, you know, we think of rich people as being kind of braggy and like, of course, everyone wants to be rich. So who's not going to show it off? But in fact, I think that at least, you know, in this population, it's sort of more comfortable to be able to say you're middle class, to feel like you're middle class or maybe upper middle class. No longer, she says, are we living in an era dominated by Vanderbilts and Rockefellers and Astors, a kind of Great Gatsby vision of wealth. We have seen a kind of decline of the old upper class, that sort of wasp, you know, almost aristocratic upper class that we think of as often coming from old money. And they've really been replaced by people working in finance or in technology or in, you know, these high revenue and wealth producing industries. Sherman put the findings of her interviews with 50 New Yorkers into a book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, which tells a striking story. Many rich people have become uncomfortable with their wealth. And that's probably not good. Not for them, not for anyone else. If the country wants to think seriously and talk openly about how you craft smart policies around income and taxes... But the discomfort that the rich feel is not all that surprising, for a couple of reasons. First, it can be hard to see yourself as wealthy if your neighbors and the parents at your kid's school, if they all live relatively similar lives. Second, a focus on the top 1% has been a hot topic in politics ever since the recession of 2008. Because the top 1% of income earners in America takes home more than 20% of the money every year. But many people who get those large salaries are aware of the inequity. So much so that talking openly about their money is not really the way they want to go. I had a woman who refused to tell me her family's rent. They were renting their apartment because they had just sold the place that they owned. And she said, you know, that's not for you to know. And I said, and it's actually really useful as an interviewer when people say stuff like that, because you can say, well, why, you know, fine, you don't have to tell me, but why is it that you don't want to tell me? And she said, you know, that's not part of our values. That's not what makes a person, you know, that I can't remember verbatim, but, you know, that's not what makes a, a, a person important. That's not what we care about. And also she said, you know, people will make judgments of you based on how you spend your money. They'll judge you for sending your kids to private school, which mm. she did. And she sort of wanted to avoid those judgments. Mm. Another woman told me that talking about money was more private than talking about sex. Mm. I had another woman who, you know, hides her price tag, the price tags on her clothing and her household items from her nanny because it makes her so uncomfortable to think of her nanny sort of looking at these price tags. Mm. So, you know, people who won't invite their children's classmates over to their homes because they don't want the families to know how wealthy they are. Those are the things that are kind of happening. And so 
I think that not talking about money, you know, it's not like I think everybody should just suddenly go into the public square and yell what their income is. I mean, that, that I don't think is super helpful either. But we have this silence around talking about class, and that sort of helps us imagine that class privilege doesn't exist, right? It helps the wealthy people themselves manage how uncomfortable they are with inequality. And in general, it makes it so transgressive to talk about money that then we can kind of never talk about it. I think Mm -hmm. that that's one of the things that like solidifies our current unequal social arrangement. Right. In what way does the feeling that rich people have about money, whatever that is, how does that have any impact on something like policy, right? The amount of money they have is in large part due to uh, how much we tax them, you know, things like that. But how does how they feel about their money have any impact on how they're taxed? So if we were to have less, be sort of less distracted by the idea that some rich people are, you know, inhabiting their wealth well and buying the right kinds of things and so on or giving away the right kind of money, we might be able to have a different kind of conversation about tax policy. I also think – I mean I should say you know, there, there, some of these people are so sensitive to being talked about in the public sphere. I had several people when I was doing these interviews you know, both before and after the 2012 uh, presidential election, you know, people who had supported Obama strongly. You know, these are mostly Democrats. I, I'm, right, I'm, right. Fairly confident that very, very few, less than 10 percent of these 50 people that I interviewed would have voted for Trump, right? These are the kind of people who are going to be Hillary Clinton supporters. Right. And I'm guessing that's a geography thing. The people are in New York and New York tends to vote Democratic, therefore. Right. Exactly. That's, like not, all that's not representative. Right, of right. course. Of course. Right. And again, there is a range across my sample of how rich they are, right? Mm-hmm. So some of them have $1 million and some of them have, you know, $50 million. Mm-hmm. Although, as I said, they're mostly in the top 1 percent. So – you know, they had voted for Obama. They had been enthusiastic about Obama. And then when Obama started saying, well, we should repeal the Bush-era tax cuts on people making over $250,000 a year, you know, then they got, like, really reluctant to support Obama. And it wasn't even so much because of the proposed tax policy. I mean, I think that was relevant. But it was also just the idea that he was suggesting that there was something wrong with these people, right? That they're, you know, that $250,000 a year was wealthy Hmm. and that he was kind of bringing up the idea of class. Someone else said to me about uh, Bill de Blasio, who was at the time getting elected mayor of New York, that, you know, he was creating class divide by talking about inequality in New York City, which is one of the most unequal uh, big cities in the U.S., if not the most unequal. Hmm. So there's a sense that like even talking about it is so transgressive that they don't want to support politicians who will bring it up. Because I think for the people who are, you know, liberal but not super progressive, one of the ways that they're managing their ambivalence and discomfort is by just kind of hanging out with people who are very similar to themselves and not really talking about it. So one of the things that you write about uh, very much in this vein is how wealthy people bring up their kids uh, to try to make sure that, like, they don't feel entitled, they don't act entitled. And that's tough because these are obviously kids who are going on fancy vacations, they're going to private school. But how did you find that people tried to ensure that they had kids who were not spoiled and did not take things for granted? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the most fascinating areas, I think, of the whole project is because I think that these parents, you know, as I sort of said, they 
They want their kids, well, they want themselves to be normal, right? They do what I'm calling aspiring to the middle, right? They want to feel like they're in the middle, that their mm. values are of the middle class, that they're hard workers, that they're reasonable consumers, you know, that they're not these, like, terrible rich people that we've been mm-hmm. talking about. So, and yet they also want to give their kids, you know, all of the advantages that they can. So the vast majority of people that I talked to had their kids in private school, you know, they had tutors, they had therapists. If they had any kind of learning disabilities, they had, you know, lots of therapy for that. They had art, they had music, they had language, they had, you know, coaching of all different sure. kinds, right, depending, depending on the age of the kid. So they had, you know, they, they traveled internationally, right, families, these families would go on, you know, most of them go on significant vacations a couple times a year. Right. So these are kids that are sort of objectively advantaged. So what are the parents going to do, right? So one thing that they can do is actually try to put their kids into environments where they have a lot of contact with people who have less than they do. The most obvious place to do that, of course, is public school. Most parents don't do that. Hmm. They, you know, there was one mother I talked to who they had lived in a kind of middle class housing, like apartment building while their home was being renovated. And she said, I really want my kids to continue to have contact with the families there. She told me, like, her son was friends with a family. I can't remember. They had three kids that lived, you know, with the whole family lived in a one-bedroom apartment or something like that. Mm. Like, here's a kind of signal of more, like, regular people, and I want my kid to be friends with those people. So, you know, however meaningful that is. But there were some parents that were trying to pursue those more meaningful connections. And there are other parents that are trying to kind of expose their kids to people who have less, especially really poor people, so they would take them to food pantries or homeless shelters or, you know, teach them to volunteer. So really giving them more of a, like a noblesse oblige kind of an ethic, Mm -hmm. but while putting them in private school and also taking them on these fancy vacations and stuff. And, you know, some of these parents will say to their kids, and this is what you were actually asking about, is, you know, you should appreciate this, right? Not every kid gets to go to Mexico on vacation. You should appreciate it. Not every kid gets to go to private school. You should appreciate it. This is special. It's a treat. You know, this is all of these ideas that, you know, sort of this isn't normal and you need to appreciate it. But at the same time, of course, for these kids, this is normal. Right. I was right? going to say, it's so hard to day. imagine yourself as some other kid. I mean, you're yourself and Exactly. It's normal. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's normal. So I think, and, and sort of what I argue in the book, is that what ultimately happens, and I think these parents are genuinely concerned about this. You know, I don't think this is a sort of like fake attempt. I think that, and much of what I think is happening in everything that I've been talking about is that it is hard to be an individual with privilege in a world that is structurally asymmetrical, right? Like, what are you actually going to do about this as an individual? So even people who have the most kind of progressive politics or the most critical politics of inequality find themselves really trapped in this. And, you know, of course, I'm not saying like, oh, it's so terrible to be rich or, you know, we should feel sorry for these rich people. Of course, it's much easier to be rich in an inegalitarian society than it is to be poor or not rich. Um, But I think that this is a real dilemma that people face. So that's something that I want to highlight. Like I'm not – it's not clear and parents struggle explicitly, some of them, with how to do this, right? They're not just unconsciously – reproducing these ideas. But what I think ultimately happens is that they end up kind of teaching the kid how to act like a good rich person, Mm -hmm. right? Not brag about their money, you know, not be obnoxious, not be entitled, which means like not feel like you're entitled to stuff just because you're somehow better than other people, right? They want their kids to have a work ethic. Like, 
ideally this is what they produce. But they don't take anything away materially from the kid. So they are, of course, also reproducing the kind of class structure at the same time. And right. I think that this must be quite confusing for many <laughs> right. of these kids to right. be told, like, you should appreciate this. This vacation, you know, you don't deserve it. I had one, one woman <laughs> You don't who, deserve it, but here we go. <laughs> right. You don't deserve it, but you have to work hard. You have to do your homework. Or, you know, I had one woman who travels with her husband in first class and the kids ride in the in coach. Oh, my god! Because gosh. the kids have not. And I have actually been told that that's not uncommon. And then I have also really? been told that when that happens, the person who's riding with the kids is usually the, like, live-in housekeeper <laughs> oh or gosh. the au pair. And unfortunately, I did not ask this person whether that was the case in, in you know, in, in her case. Right. So, you know, they're, they're coming up with these ways of trying to inculcate some sense of, you know, quote unquote normal hmm. in their kids. But it is really difficult when their kids have this extremely privileged life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rachel Sherman, an associate professor of sociology at the New School. She's the author of Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence. One thing that is so striking to me is that we have literally television shows about people who win the lottery and how they spend that money on like their, I think it's like their lottery dream home. And people, I mean, as you know, like when lottery jackpots get very, very high, there will be all sorts of news reports about people lining up down the block, right, to buy lottery tickets. And so in some ways, there's this great American dream of being rich. And a lot of people, either by doing the lottery or, or just by working hard all the time, are trying to achieve that dream. And yet, our feelings about the rich, and you hear you talk to all these rich people, and they're so conflicted about being rich. You would think, like, man, they made it. They 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 accomplished what so many people like buy that ticket in hope of accomplishing. Doesn't that seem kind of, I don't know, it's a paradoxical to you? Yeah, I don't know if it's paradoxical. I mean, it's something a lot of people that I know who have read the this work have said to me. You know, it's almost reassuring to know that rich people aren't happy either. <laughs> And again, I think they're ambivalent. I don't think it's, you know, it's not only that they're, you know, they're not consciously thinking all day like it's terrible for me to have this privilege or this economic comfort, right? Of course, they are also happy that they have Mm -hmm. it. But as you said before, you know, people get accustomed to what they have. They compare themselves to those around them. So it starts to, you know, I had a, a woman say to me, she said, New York is a bubble. You don't think that much about people who have less than you because everybody's pretty well off. And you know, her housekeeper was standing like 10 feet away when the when she said that, you know, the, through the whole interview. So I think that there's a way in which people just kind of get used to the lives that they have, right? So again, I don't want to overstate like they're unhappy being wealthy. I just think that they're ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that we, you know, this is, these are cultural images that we have of, yes, it would be great to win the lottery. The American dream, you know, pays off if you work hard. And we have very positive images often of entrepreneurs, especially men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Gates, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, until recently, I think Mark Zuckerberg, right. who are kind of seen as adding value to the economy. And so then, you know, uh, Warren Buffett is another one who the fact that they have, you know, literally billions of dollars um, becomes sort of OK. But at the same time, we have also these images of sort of hyper-consumerist, and again, I think these these are more associated with women, although not exclusively, of wealthy people as dilettantes, over-consumers, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, mm-hmm. and so on. And you see that in reality TV, too. I mean, the Real Housewives franchise, totally. you know, that whole totally. mm-hmm. 
um, that really reproduces those kinds of images. And so especially – and most of the people I talked to, about two-thirds of my sample were women. So some of this may be more specific to women, although the men I talked to had plenty of conflicts also. And they really struggle against those images, especially the ones who are now stay-at-home moms who are, you know, highly educated and worked in maybe finance or law and now are not working for money, really are trying not to be those people. Well, and it's interesting. You you point this out, too, that – People like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett often have these sort of stories, and not untrue stories, but stories attached to their wealth. So it's true Bill Gates is, it you know, it changes at any given moment, but very often the richest man in the world. And he has a ton of money, but he also has pledged to give practically all of it away to very, very poor people, to defeating things like malaria. Warren Buffett, again... Often, uh, the richest man in the world depends on the year you're looking at. But famous. He's famous for living in a modest house and drinking Coca-Cola and, like, eating burgers at Dairy Queen and stuff. And in some ways, I feel like those stories help to offset the wealth that they have, that somehow it's okay because they're still really normal or they're, you know, incredibly good. Yeah, I mean, I I think you just kind of encapsulated a lot of what I'm trying to say in that in both of those, those are two different processes, right? But they're both happening. So on the one hand, you have someone like Buffett who is kind of attached to a middle class consumption ethic. Right. 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 So he's seen as down to earth. You know, he lives in the same house he's lived in since the 50s. You know, everything that you said. So on the one hand, that's a way to be a good rich person. You could have 50 or 70 billion dollars. Right. But then, you know, you seem like kind of a nice guy and your values are in the right place if you're not being a super consumer. On the other hand, you have someone like Gates who is known, as you said, for this kind of massive philanthropy. So in that way, his wealth is acknowledged. But the idea that he's giving a lot of it away then also makes him a good person. Though, of course, you know, this philanthropy at that level, I think, really raises questions about who's in charge of where social resources go, Mm -hmm. right? If we're going to have a sort of distribution of income such that people like Gates are able to really determine the course of development in developing countries or the course, you know, in the U.S. of education with the investment of lots of finance people in charter schools, for example. That's a very undemocratic way to provide social goods, which is not to impugn anybody's motives in giving money away. But I don't think it's an unqualified uh, positive thing. But those are the two kinds of, of images, right, that we have. And you also said something that I think is important, which is the idea that the money is self-made. You know, politicians are always talking about how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps right, and how right, their right. mother was a domestic worker, their grandfather was a coal miner or whatever. Right, right. So we've always had, again, you know, a sort of I think more of a stigma on inherited wealth, people who are seen to be unmotivated and, and lazy. And the people I interviewed who had inherited their wealth were very concerned with having paying jobs and, you know, actually working for money and seeing themselves as as workers. Because just like the stay-at-home moms are kind of trying to distance themselves from these stereotypes of the real housewives, inherited wealth people are trying to distance themselves from stereotypes of, um, you know, like rich inheritors who can't do anything. Rachel Sherman is an associate professor of sociology at the New School. She's also the author of Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And if you think there's a gap between middle-class folks and the wealthy, check out the gap between the wealthy and the super-wealthy, which has been exploding in recent years. 
We've got an article about that at our website, innovationhub.org. Plus, we'll have a link there to a recent interview we did on how much impact the super wealthy, like Bill Gates or the Koch brothers, should have on our national priorities. 